morning. So the last words that you hear with a person before you know that you're not going to see them for a while is quite significant. And I assume some of us know that just from experience, whether that's from a grandparent or a parent that is on their, are about to pass away and we just hang on to their, their last words. Or it's a, a friend, maybe a college buddy, and you guys know you're going different paths. You might not see him for years and years, or you may never see him again. And so you hear the last words you say to each other. You're very purposeful of what you say, and you really grab onto what they what they say to you. Or like even, and I think about this, and this is, this describes me often when uh, we're saying goodbye to our spouse, a parent, or a kid as they go to work or school. And we want to make sure our last words is I love you because we don't know what's going to happen, but we want them to ha- hear that as one of our last words. And so we take the last words very importantly, whether saying it or hearing it. And we see this exact dynamic with Paul and the Ephesians elders. We see that in Acts. Um, with Ephesus, Paul has been there nurturing these guys, these leaders. He's been discipling them. He has been being persecuted with them for three years. And so he starts going to Jerusalem and he says that he doesn't know what's going to happen. He knows that there's most likely persecution in every city coming. And he says that, he says he's pretty sure that he'll never see them again. And so his last words was spoken. This is recorded in Acts. And one of the things he says is this, the last word. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And so in one of his last words, and it was his last words to the Ephesian elders, he says, be alert. Because when I leave, fierce wolves will come in and some among you. Be alert. He's talking about false teachers will come and some will rise among you. And this is exactly what we see with the Galatians. Paul left, and false teachers came in after him, the Judaizers. We see that here. And so we're going to look at a passage today with some pretty blunt language, as we heard John read, where Paul takes on these false teachers head on. And there's one thing throughout the passage that's very clear that for us to understand is resist false teaching. Resist false teaching. Do not slumber. Do not be inattentive. Do not be indifferent, but resist false teaching. And so this morning, what I want us to do is this. We're going to split the message up in two parts. The first part, we're going to look at the passage, and Paul kind of hits out five points about false teaching. After the first part, we'll look at the second part, which is I want to list off nine false teachings that I think we're susceptible to just in our culture, in our in our country. So that's how we're going to do it. We're going to look at the passage with Paul's points and then look at, we'll take that to heart and look at nine different false teachings that we may be susceptible to. And I want to tell you this. The points are short, but I think it's important for us to go through it, to hear what Paul, God through Paul is having to say about this and then turning it on ourselves. Okay, 
Let's evaluate ourselves. So the first part is the, Paul's, the, pa- the, the passage and Paul's five points. And the first point is this. It's the reality of false teaching. One author, he writes this. Satan's greatest weapon in war against humankind is deception. Because he is older than we are and smarter than we are, he often uses his experience and know-how to encourage us to adamantly believe that we're going in the right direction when in fact we are headed down a path of destruction. There are false teachers. And that idea is very uh, against the grain of our culture and that kind of bleeds into our church that you can't really call people false teachers because it's unloving or it's it's divisive or it's hate speech. But it is everywhere in the New Testament. Calls to beware of false teaching is everywhere in the New Testament. And it's everywhere for us. It's coming through our, our TVs, our internet, that's more blatant false teaching about different worldviews, different false religions. It's blatant there. And unfortunately, sometimes it comes through in our Christian books where some false teaching with that. And so, and this should be no surprise to us. Paul says in Romans 12 that the world will be actively trying to conform you to its worldview, to its image, to its teaching. We're told in 2 Peter 2.1 that there'll be false teachers among us, American Christianity, there'll be some among us. If you remember in Galatians 2.4, Paul talks about false false brothers that got snuck in. They've snuck in. So there should be no surprise about the reality of false teaching. And the Galatians were dealing heavily with this. The consequences of this. And so it'd be naive of us to think that we're not going to ever deal with this. As I said, in fact, almost every New Testament book or letter has some part, almost every, about false teaching, whether opposing the false teaching or saying beware of false teaching. And so we cannot be ignorant, we cannot be lazy. And if you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about um, false teachers. He says in Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. As Jesus himself says, hey, they're coming, but they're going to look just like us. They're going to talk like us. They're going to say all the nice things. They're going to sound so spiritual. But they're fierce wolves. So be aware. Be alert. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They're not going to come out with the Satan horns and a red tail. They're going to look just like us. And so that's the first point, is we understand the reality of false teaching. We cannot be naive that there's not false teaching being pushed on us. It's dangerous, and it's not like the, the boogeyman or Sasquatch that it's just, it's out there, it's not happening, but it's very present. And so being on the lookout for false teaching doesn't make you paranoid it makes you wise and obedient because we're commanded all over in the New Testament to be aware, be alert. So that's the first point, is that false teaching is an ever-present reality. Number two, Paul gets into this. He says, understand the threat of false teaching. Pick up in our, in our passage, verse, uh, verse 7. Paul says, you were running well. He's speaking to the Galatians. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? In the New Testament, our, our walk with Christ, our Christian life, is very um, commonly compared to a race or a, a foot race, a run. Um, like, for example, one that's pretty well known is Hebrews 12.1, where the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and, and sin which clings to us closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance. It's, it's not a spirit. It's, a, it's a, a marathon. And so it's compared to our Christian life. It's compared to a foot race. And in this passage, the verses 12, uh, chapter 12, 1, verse 1 in Hebrews, it refers to sin that clings to us and to lay aside every burden. 
I'm not a runner. Is Who here likes to run? Well, God bless you. <laughs> but it'd be unwise if you're in a race to hold on to weights, right? It might be good in practice when you're training and stuff, kind of some resistance, but in an actual race that counts, it'd be kind of unwise and kind of foolish to wear a weight. And so here in uh, Hebrews 12:1, he talks about like sin being that weight that it, it, it hinders us. And Paul says here that false teaching does that as well. It hinders us in our Christian walk. It hinders our spiritual state. It hinders our family's spiritual condition. False teaching does. Paul uses that rhetorical question. He says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? He knows who it is, but he's making the point that these people are not helping you. They're hindering you. And with that that picture of a, a race, that word hindered has this idea of you're running and you've got your opponents next to you and they cut you off on purpose to kind of stop you. So you, hit your, you stop your momentum and they take off. And that's the same idea is that the false teachers, they cut in front of you and they kept on going and they just kind of blocked you. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you from continuing faith in Christ? Paul continues, verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. With that one sentence, he, he, uh, he labels it. This is false teaching. Have nothing, nothing to do with it. He passes clear judgment. These are false teachers. And look at the word he uses. This persuasion. This persuasion. It's not the, the, just this idea or whatnot. But he purposely says this persuasion. Why? Because it's persuasive. It is persuasive. False teaching is attractive. It's almost believable. It wouldn't be a threat if it was not attractive and persuasive. One, uh, one scholar writes this. He says, The passion of their missionary zeal, being the false teachers in Galatia, has convinced some that the opponents must be proclaiming a divine message. He says, The passion of their missionary zeal. The false teachers, they had passion. They loved Jesus. They had excitement. They were authentic. And they were a massive threat. False teaching is dangerous and it is a threat because it is persuasive. Paul continues, verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, who here bakes? Like, bakes food and stuff. Casey bakes me banana bread and I say Casey does purposely because I can't remember and Casey can help me. Is she even here anymore? No, No, she's gone. Good. I cannot remember and this is more of a confession of sin maybe. The last time, if ever, I've ever baked something. Uh, besides like lasagna, but an actual bread thing, I don't even remember. Cookies, maybe. But I usually eat the cookie dough raw. Anyway, the point is, those who are bakers would probably understand this a lot better than I do about the leaven, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And the idea that how a little yeast can affect the whole bread, can cause the whole bread to rise. That's what he's saying here. A little false teaching affects the whole. I think he's saying this on two levels. Number one is on a personal level. Having 90% truth and 10% error is not good because that 10% error will affect and distort the truth. A teacher of mine always used to say, truth plus error equals terror. Truth plus air equals terror. And that's what sometimes makes false teaching so deceptive is that it's covered with 90% truth. But then that, then the 10% creeps in. In the world of advertising, we have a lot of things that tell us um, this is 99% this. Like, for example, uh, what's it called? The, the stuff you clean your hands with. The bacterial soap or whatever. Hand sanitizer. There we go. Where it says it kills 99.9% of bacteria, right? But there's that 0.1% that you're like, well, I'm not sure what that is. Is that the, the bubonic plague that it's missing? What's going on here? Um, those who are in the medical field, please uh, overlook my part there. I'm not sure what that means. But the point is this. If you've got a water bottle that says 90% pure and 10% contaminated, would you drink it? Would you give it your kid to drink? 
90% pure. It's 90% pure, but it's 10% contaminated. Because that 10% would contaminate the rest. And that's the same thing with false teaching. A little bit leavens the whole lump. And that's on a personal level and on a corporate level. A small group of us that may be espousing or believing a false teaching will permeate in the rest of the body. It will negatively affect the rest of the body. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Do not minimize error. Do not minimize false teaching because it is consequential. Benjamin Franklin, he once wrote this. He said, For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. And for want of a rider, the battle was lost. One little thing can have disastrous consequences. So don't minimize it. False teaching is a threat. It is attractive. It's like a forest fire that can spread. It is like the little leaven that leavens the whole lump. So false teaching is real and it's a threat. Number three, the third point, is that even though this is a threat, be confident in your security in Christ. Be confident in your security in Christ. Uh, Verse 10, Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And it's interesting what Paul says here. He says, I don't have confidence in you. He's saying, I have confidence in your Savior that he will keep you. Be confident in your security in Christ. God will lose none of his children. Paul writes this in Philippians 1.6. He says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You are secure in Christ. Take seriously the numerous warnings in the New Testament about being aware, be cautious, be alert for false teaching, but also have confidence in your security in Christ. False teaching is real. It is a dangerous threat, but be confident in your security in Christ And he adds on there, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And the Bible speaks heavy punishment and judgment of false teachers. If you're interested, look at 2 Peter chapter 2 and look at all of Jude. And it is not good language towards those who are deceiving others. So false teaching is real. It is a threat. But be confident in your security in Christ. Here's the fourth point that we see here by Paul is that false teaching will push back against truth. It will push back. Paul writes, verse 11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And so this is what's going on here. So it's clear that Paul is being persecuted by the false teachers. They're bad-mouthing Paul to the Galatians. He, he, they're, they're, they're persecuting him. But what's interesting is that he somehow, in the midst of this, he's also being accused of preaching circumcision, which is completely not true, as we see everywhere in, the, in as Paul teaches, specifically in this letter, that that's the opposite of what he's teaching. He's teaching that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, nothing to do with circumcision. But Paul makes the argument, hey, if I was still preaching circumcision, like he was when he was a Pharisee before Christ, He's like, why would you be persecuting me? I'd just be one of you guys. So that doesn't make any sense, he's saying. But then he tags on this phrase. He says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. The cross is offensive. It is offensive to human pride. We think, I should say, our pride tells us, I can do it. I am good. And I don't need anyone else. The cross tells us, I can't do it. I am inherently evil, and I need a Savior. And that's offensive to us. Truth is offensive. Living living for and sharing truth will bring pushback from false teaching. And I think um, one way that this happens is it goes something like this. Um, someone 
begin sharing, teaching, writing, whatever, something that is off scripturally. It's off. It just it's not right. And we and the people give them the benefit of the doubt. Like, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, we we hope for the best. Like, okay, I think they were just kind of confused here. But over time, this person continues to grow in popularity because false teaching is attractive, it's persuasive, and people start welcoming it more and more. But it comes to a point that needs to be addressed because this is this is very blatant and this needs to be addressed. And so when people do address it, it's those people who call up the air that are seen as divisive, that are seen as unloving. They're labeled as that. And I think that's one way that it, false teaching pushes back against truth. You'll look like the divisive one by saying, no, this is actually not right. This is actually kind of false. But in Scripture, it's clear that it's the false teachers who are leaving sound doctrine, who's leaving the truth, that are the dividers. Paul makes this clear in Romans uh, 16. Jude makes it clear in his short letter in verse 17. False teaching will push back against the truth, especially if you try to address it or bring it out. So Paul is saying here, false teaching is real. It is a dangerous threat. It will subtly mix with truth, but be confident in your security in Christ, and it will push back against truth. And the last point that we'll see here is more of a summary. It's just how serious false teaching is. And this is verse 12. Paul writes this, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Paul is literally saying, I wish the false teachers would go ahead and completely amputate their genitals. Very blunt, very tough language. He's saying if they think cutting off a little skin is going to gain them favor with God, they might as well cut the whole thing off. Strong language. Very strong. But what we can take from that is how serious false teaching is. Paul is being very blunt. He is saying how much he dislikes, he dislikes the false teachers and what he wishes they would do because of how serious false teaching is. It puts our spiritual state at risk. It puts our families' spiritual state at risk. It puts our church families' spiritual state at risk. It completely compromises our reaching and witness to our community. False teaching is very dangerous and very serious. So we see those five points. Number one, false teaching is a reality. It is seeking to infiltrate in your life today. Number two, false teaching is a threat. It is dangerous. Number three, be aware of false teaching, but be confident in your security in Christ. Number four, false teaching will Oppose and push back against the truth. So expect that. Number five, resist it because it is serious. So Paul's straightforward about false teaching. It is a big deal and it is prevalent. And so what I want to do here now in the second part is look at false teaching that we are susceptible to. Now anything that opposes the gospel that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And you might, I've been repeating that since Galatians because that is exactly what Paul is saying here. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Outside of that, or mixing with that, is false teaching. And there's blatant false teaching, like uh, Mormonism, Islam, Jehovah Witnesses. That's very blatant. But what I think we're very susceptible to is the false teaching that comes in 90% true and 10% error. There's some really good teaching that's within it, that's contained within it, but there's false teaching that sneaks in with it. And so for the rest of the time this morning, I want us to consider nine false teachings that come in and sneak in with some good teaching. Eight of these are taken from a book titled Hidden Worldviews um, from a guy named Steve Wilkins and Mark Sanford, and I'm going to expand on them. But what a title. Hidden Worldviews. These are hidden. They're sneaking in. Under 90% true, these 10% error going through. So as we go through this, and they're going to be short, because like I said, we don't have a lot of time, I'm going to do three things quickly. 
So if you're listening to this, either take notes or just start away and think about it and reflect on yourself. Because I reflect on myself too. Number one, we'll see the good stuff. Because there is good stuff. There's 9% good stuff. Number two, we'll look at the air that sneaks in that can deceive us. And number three, I'm just going to ask one or two questions to ask ourselves concerning it. Does that make sense? So those three, for these nine, it'll be quick. So number one is this. Individualism. Number one is individualism. There is a lot of good. Individualism strongly upholds each of our individual dignity as humans, as being an image of Christ. It highlights our individual personal personal um, abilities, interests. It, it, in addition, it emphasizes our individual freedom and our responsibility. Excellent. Excellent. But consider the error that can creep in with individualism. It can subtly teach us that it's about my desires, it's about my goals and my experience, and that's most important. It can slowly make other people look like opportunities to meet my needs and look at those that don't meet my needs as just obstacles and just kind of push them away. Individual can subtly teach us that we don't need the church. Why? Because number one, it looks at institutions like the church that it's it's suspicious because it, it won't uphold what I think is best. I won't give it my own loyalty, my first loyalty, because it won't promise to protect my interests. And so individual teaches us don't be dependent on the church. It teaches us don't don't be dependent on the church because we dislike the conformity and we think it, it diminishes our personal individual um, expression, even conforming to sound doctrine. It tells us, hey, you got to express yourself. You have to be personally different. Individual teaches that. It teaches us that our faith is just between God and me, and so I don't need the church. And individual can subtly teach us that we're independent. We don't need other people. We definitely don't need the church. There is good individual. There's a lot of good things. But there's false teaching that can creep in very sneakily. And so ask yourself, if you want to go do something, whether it be going on a trip, a fishing trip, um, working on a project, watching the, the big game, whatever, and you've been waiting and anticipating for this for a while, would you give that up if your wife or husband asked you to do something else during that time? Would you give it up if your kids wanted to play with you instead and spend time with you? What if you're someone in the church and needed your help during that time or even need financial help? Would you give money to that instead of what you're planning on doing? To what degree do you consider yourself in need of your church family? That your spiritual condition, your leadership in your family is somewhat dependent on each other in this room right now. So individualism has a lot of good, but there's a lot of air that can subtly come through. So that's number one. Number two is this. It's consumerism. Consumerism is something I think we're very susceptible to. There's good. There's actually a lot of good. Um, Consumerism emphasizes that we are held accountable for the stewardship of our resources that God has given us. We are held accountable. Excellent. On a practical level, consumerism, it, it promotes ideas, more practical ideas, new ideas. In fact, um, Paul through Timothy tells us that God has given us things to enjoy. So there's there's good in consumerism. But there's a lot of bad that can come through. There's a lot of air that can subtly come through. So the second part, we can begin to hope in this wealth in these resources rather than in Christ. We can seek fulfillment and satisfaction in these things rather than Christ. Consumerism can teach us to find our security in having a certain amount of money in our bank account rather than trusting in Christ. And consumerism, just like individual, teaches that it's all about what I want, what I can get. And those that stop giving to me, I'll just move on, toss them aside and move on. They're, they're, they're expendable. I can just move on and consume the next thing. 
There's good in consumerism, but there's air that sneaks in. So ask yourself, what are you afraid of losing? Because what you're afraid of losing will tell you what you really value. What are you afraid of losing? And do you come to church asking what you can receive or what you can give for another person? Number three, the third subtle false teaching that can creep in. It's nationalism. There's a lot of good in nationalism. It is good to be patriotic for your country. We're commanded to pray for our leaders. We are told to work hard for our country so that it prospers. The Apostle Paul uses his Roman citizenship when he gets into some hard situations. He reminds them, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me. So he, he uses it. He proudly uses his citizenship. And not all nations are created equal. And I am blessed every day to be living in the United States. There's a lot of good in nationalism. But consider the false teaching that can subtly come in. Nationalism can lead to give our highest loyalty to a country rather than to God. Nationalism can subtly lead us to work for the good of our country and neglect eternal things. Nationalism can lead us to lose sight that we have brothers and sisters in Christ in other countries like North Korea, Russia, Iran, Iraq. And nationalism can subtly teach us that our civil rights are more important than our calling and commission as followers of Christ. So ask yourself, does God care more about the United States or about Iran? If the United States did not exist in 100 years, would it at all hinder God's plan in the world? And lastly, do you know more about the Bill of Rights than you do about God's word? There's a lot of good in nationalism, but there's a subtle air that can creep in. Number four is moral relativism. Moral relativism. You might be wondering, okay, this has nothing to do with us. Follow with me. There's some good that comes with that. This is the good. It can help us understand different perspectives and influences. It can remind us that the end does not justify the means. An extreme example, it reminds us that it is wrong to blow up an abortion clinic. The means is not justified by the end. It can also help us to keep from being intellectually lazy. That instead of digging into what God's word says, we just, ah, whatever, we'll just go with what we, what we think. I'll give an example here. It's like parenting. Instead of diving into God's word, what does God command to me about a parent? We just say, well, I'll just go with what I've been taught. But here's the error in moral relativism, is that on matters that are not up to opinion or taste, we act as if they are, and that we don't seek out God's truth in His Word, nor the intervention of other intervention of others. We justify what we do because we we think there's bliss in ignorance instead of seeking out truth and studying it. We're just we want to be ignorant and blissful in that. For example, um, pornography. We can justify soft pornography and think that's okay. Divorce. We'll go with irreconcilable differences rather than what does God teach on this. So ask yourself within this how it, how it ties to us. Do you automatically accept a notion put forth if it supports what you want, your agenda and interests, and don't look any deeper? For example, if you identify with the Republicans or the Democrats or whatever, do you automatically accept their agenda and support it without digging deeper into what it actually means? What does God's word say about this? Do you neglect certain moral issues until you have to come face to face with it? For example, the poor. We're commanded to, to, to reach out to the poor. 
Do we neglect that until we become poor and we're in need of something? Or another example, um, sex trafficking. Do we neglect that until someone we know gets abducted? So moral relativism can infiltrate the church. There's some good, but some air comes through. Number five is scientific naturalism or secular humanism is another term. Uh, The good is this. It teaches us the value of science, which is based on a Christian worldview. It teaches us the value of modern medicine, physics, all that, about God's creation. It teaches us and acknowledges the importance of reason, the faculty that God has created us with. It leads us with the goal of unity and solving problems. Excellent. But there's some air that can sneak in. Number one, it can subtly diminish our view of people as they're just reacting to different things. They're just simplistic cells and atoms. It teaches a form of determinism, meaning everything happens to us or what happens to us or through us is just because of all these different causes. We don't have any kind of responsibility to it. For example, uh, we lash out in anger but blame it on our spouse because they were mean to me and that's why that's why I'm acting out. It's, that's You're the cause and I take no responsibility. Or we neglect studying God's word because we're tired. That's the cause and I don't have really any kind of responsibility with that. And it can lead us to put our hope in man and not God. And so ask yourself, do you have appropriate confidence in your own ability and man's ability, whether that be the mechanic working on your um, your brakes, the doctor, the pilot flying, the airplane you're in, whatever, or is your hope ultimately in God alone? Do we have an inappropriate confidence in man's ability? And the second question, do you shift the blame Blame for your sin, whether it be anger, lust, whatever, and place it on others as if you have no responsibility. It, 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 I'm just responding to the causes. Um, you made me feel bad, and that's why I yell at you. Or um, you're not meeting my needs, and that's why I'm looking at pornography. We shift the blame. Number six, three more to go. Number six, another false teaching that can come under a good, and that is mysticism. The good that's with mysticism is it teaches us the priority of the spiritual dimension. The physical is not all there is. The priority of the spiritual dimension. It teaches us that we can miss God's work in our everyday life if we're not looking for it, if we're not inclined to look for it. And it sometimes can expose some power struggles within the church. But there's a lot of air that can sneak in with mysticism. For example, it can lead us to romanticize the Christian life. As if life should always be filled with these spiritual highs and be a consistent, just out of this world life that's easygoing, uh, when instead the Christian life, as we see in scriptures, more defined by suffering. It's defined by warning with our with our sinful flesh and dwelling sin. Mysticism can subtly teach us to seek hidden knowledge within, such as an impression or a, a, a voice, a feeling, rather than God's word. It can teach us that what makes something valid or true is our experience and not truth and not God's word. And it can teach us a form of anti-intellectualism It places a high value on emotions and not truth, which is in opposition to God's word where he talks about renewing our minds throughout the New Testament. And so mysticism, there's a lot of good, but there's subtle false teaching. And so ask ourselves, do we look within for an impression, a feeling, some sort of uh, of experience for um, an an indication of truth or direction Rather than studying God's word, praying, thinking upon it, asking others to also pray and study. And when you think of spiritual growth, do we think about 
it as growth and obedience, growth and knowing God's word, or do we just see it as somehow tapping into a hidden source and elevation of emotion and experience? So with mysticism, there's good, but there's false that can sneak in with it. Um, number seven, and this, if you are up at all with politics at all, this will be familiar. The actual word is called intersectionality, which is defined this way. You'll, you'll find it that it is uh, common in politics today. And it's, the, it's this. It's the social categories you belong to, such as ethnicity, gender, social financial class, sexual orientation, nationality, language, level of education, all of it, that that determines one's level of disadvantage, discrimination, disempowerment, or oppression, as well as their primary identity. Basically, you're reduced to the group that you that you identify or you're in, like your your skin color, um, what nation you're in, what language, all these different groups. And there is some good. It teaches us to be empathetic towards people. It exposes our placement of hope in these groups rather than in Christ, and it helps us understand how our culture can affect our bias in different things but there's a lot of bad that comes in it can teach us to be loyal to this group rather than to Christ it can subtly and this is becoming very prevalent uh, within the church as a whole in American Christianity is that we cannot trust our interpretation of God's word because of our skin color or because of our culture instead of trusting in um how we study and trusting that God will open our eyes to the truth. So ask yourself, with that idea, do we have more loyalty to a group we're part of rather than to Christ? Second to last one. Some teaching that can come in under good is I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna define this one. It's salvation by therapy or moralistic, therapeutic deism. And let me break that up. This idea is this. Moralistic. It's all about morals. Doing good and bad. Therapeutic. It's all about me. Making me feel better. Making me become, I'm just going to use this word, healthier. That that's the goal. And then deism, the idea that there's a God, but he's far distant. He's not involved. And so, Christianity, or this idea has this idea that it's all about morals, it's all about me feeling better, and God is not really involved, he doesn't really care, he's just out there, he, deism, which is deism, he's far out there, he's not very involved. And there's some good that comes from this, because psychology and therapy reminds us of what we can learn from it, such as developmental, developmental psychology within how kids' brains develop, or the hormonal causes and different things like depression, anxiety. It reminds us, and this got brought up in our science class, that sanctification is a process. We won't just be sanctified at once. We're justified at once, but we'll slowly become more like Christ. But there's some air that sneaks in. It can subtly teach us that life is all about me feeling better. That it's about me being more healthy. And there's a lot of good with that, but that's the ultimate. It teaches that we cannot change the effects of our past or psychological issues. When in fact, we can grow a lot in that area. It reduces, and this is huge, this, our problem, the human problem, to a psychological issue rather than sin, which is the issue in Christ. There's a lot of good, but there's a lot of bad. And so ask ourselves, is your overarching goal in life about your welfare and comfort? And when issues arise, do you right away pinpoint it on uh, a non-spiritual issue rather than and just dismiss the issue of sin and other spiritualities? Number nine, here's the last one. So the last teaching, false teaching that can sneak in under a lot of truth, and that's pragmatism. And what I mean by this is the idea that um, if it works, then it's right. If it doesn't work, that means it's wrong. 
If a technique or a course of action has the desired effect, it is good. If it doesn't seem to work, it must be wrong. And there's a lot of good that comes from this. It's all about, it teaches the desire for results. We want people to come to Christ. We want people to grow. We want people to be changed. It places a high value on unity. There will be a high approval. Pragmatism, it's high approval. It's working. And it, it leads to a lot of creativity to try new things. But there's a lot of error that could sneak in under pragmatism. It teaches that the end justifies the mean. If it works, then it must be right. It teaches that results are so valuable that any means can be taken. It teaches that we ought to abandon what is right, or what we could teach us that we must abandon what is right if it doesn't get us the results we want. If God's word doesn't get us the results, we can abandon that and move on to a different means. It can subtly teach us that. It can subtly teach us to start minimizing offensive things in Scripture, homosexuality, um, male and female gender, hell, sin. The Bible itself tells it will be that will be opposed. People will not like that. They'll go to other teachers that will tickle their ears, Paul says to Timothy. But if we're desiring for results, it'll teach us, hey, get rid of that and focus more on this. And so ask yourself with this idea, are you more focused on how we can get the desired results more than you're focused on being faithful to God's commands and His priorities? Are you seeking the most effective methodology more than correct theology? So those are the nine I just want to throw out there because I want us to take seriously this idea of resisting false teaching. And I'm not saying we all struggle with these different ideas, but there's this susception to this, that we can be susceptible to these ideas um, that's prevalent in our culture. There's a lot of good, but that's what makes the false teaching deceptive is because it sneaks in with it. And so Paul's points, I'm going to hit them again. False teaching is real. It is a threat. But be confident. Take the, the, the command seriously, but be confident in your security in Christ. False teaching will oppose truth and it will push back, but resist it because it is incredibly serious and dangerous. And we looked at the nine, um, nine examples of false teaching that can sneak in some evil and some error with the good. That was individualism, consumerism, nationalism, moral relativism, scientific naturalism, mysticism, intersectionality, moralistic therapeutic deism, and pragmatism. And I completely understand that was a lot I'm throwing at you. And so let me end with this. Five quick points on how do we then resist. Five quick. How do we resist false teaching? Because it is serious, it is dangerous, and it is present. Number one, be alert and expect it. It's like I said, it's all over. Paul, Jesus, Jude, John, Peter. Read it. They're telling us. They're out there. Be alert. Do not be indifferent. Do not be idle. Be alert. For your sake, for your family's sake, for your church family's sake, for your community's sake, be alert. Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised when you hear and see false teaching because it is there. Don't be, intent- don't be inattentive. Don't be indifferent. Don't be cynical, but be critical. Number two, test everything with God's word. Test everything. In Acts, Luke records when Paul um, connects with a group called the Bereans. And they heard Paul, and it says in Acts that they eagerly received it, but then examined the scriptures to see if they were true. We're called to do the same. Test everything with God's word. Always compare it with God's word, because that is our litmus test, is God's word. Number three, regularly evaluate yourself. Is what you're building your life on, your philosophy of life, of ministry, of work, of parenting, whatever, is it built on truth? Or has these things subtly creeped in? Uh, One author says, without reflection, ideas contrary to a Christian worldview creep into our convictional beliefs and we might not even realize it. Another says, our worldview, if we live an unexamined life, can be adulterated by hidden elements that dilute and corrupt a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Evaluate yourself to see if, if what we believe is really in God's word. Continue. Be consistent regularly. Number four, be intentional and consistent about growing 
and studying God's word, growing in and studying God's word. People who are trained to spot counterfeit money, they don't spend all their time being trained on looking at all these false ways, which is numerous. They study the real bill so that when a counterfeit comes by, they know what a real one looks like and they know this is false. There's benefit to, to looking at the false ones, but the dedication is on knowing the true one. So in the same way, if we know God's word, we know what's true, we'll know something's off when we hear something's off. Because we know, ah, well, it says here and blah, 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 that that's, this is what the Bible says. And so study God's word. Know God's word. Lastly, ask the elders. One of the responsibilities of an elder is laid out here in Titus 1.9. Paul says this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction, sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders, it's their duty to know God's word very well so they can teach it, but also to know false teaching when they hear it and to rebuke it. So resist false teaching. Do you know what you're drinking? Is it 90% pure or 10% contaminated? Do you know what you're giving your kids? Paul is saying here, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. And he was very blunt with his words, what he wants the false teachers to do. Because false teaching is very serious. Jesus tells us it's present. It's prevalent, and it will be hidden, and it will be persuasive, it will be attractive, but we are to resist it. So resist false teaching. Please pray with me. Um, Father, God, we are thankful that you care about us. Lord, we are thankful for practical commands. Um, God, Lord, give us humility to look at ourselves Um, And just to evaluate ourselves, where are we at? What are we believing? Lord, give us grace and humility that if we see something that's not in your word, um, that is contradicting your word, Lord, give us grace to, okay, change our mind and look at what the truth is. Lord, let us see the, the real threat of false teaching for our sake, for our family's sake, for our church family's sake, and then our witness to the the community. God, we are thankful for our security in your son, Jesus. That things will come up, that we can be confused, but we know that we're secure in Christ. You do not lose any of your children. Lord, help us this week as these lies will permeate our minds about works righteousness, that we have to do this, this, this. But Lord, may we speak the truth and hold on to the truth that Christ has paid it all. We are made right in your eyes. Lord, may we live out of this hope and this truth. And God, thank you for loving us. Be with us as we go out today, Lord. Lord, be with us. May your love pour out through us to other people, to our family, um, to people at our our, our job, at school. Help us, Lord, to be uh, a witness to you. And Father, we ask this in your Son's name. Amen.